Genesis chapter 42. This chapter deals with the family of Joseph. This last section of the book of Genesis is centered on that man, Joseph. And anytime you open the word or read any part of it, we, we should humbly, respectfully, and with a heart to learn, ask why. Why would God spend any time, let alone the whole quarter of the book of Genesis, on the life of one man? Why? Well, first, let's, let us all agree that Joseph was not a demigod. He was not imbued with special powers or gifts. His sin nature was no less than ours. He wasn't Superman. He wasn't Batman. He wasn't Captain America. He was just like you. He was just like me. And this is important when we consider the why of this section of Scripture. And our chapter from today, our chapter opens not in Egypt, but back up north, back in Canaan. The events as told to us in our last chapter of Joseph being set free from prison, being set free from his slavery to Potiphar, being made ruler over Potiphar and every other Egyptian save Pharaoh. That all happened seven years ago. By this time, all vestiges of his Hebrewness would have all been long gone. The violence that was done to him in his youth by his family, that happened over 20 years ago. The treachery of Potiphar's wife to him, that happened over a decade ago. And he would have had no memorabilia of his life in Canaan. No license plate, no surfboard in his office, nothing. But he had been given a wife. And we're never told if this was a loving marriage or not. But he had also been given two sons that he adored. And he had freedom. And he had power. And he had prestige. But he also had a lot of responsibility, which never seemed to be even thought about. His job was a pressure cooker of a job. He was in charge with the entire well-being of every person within the nation of Egypt, and the financial and social well-being of that country as well. And Joseph wasn't elected to this position. He was appointed. Why? Why did Pharaoh appoint him to this job? Well, we know that because of chapter 41. When Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Sarah, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made you know all of this, there is no one so understanding and wise as you are. Verses 38 and 39. It was God. God in Joseph. There was another character right, in Joseph himself that God made manifest in him. God had been preparing Joseph for that day from his youth forward. When he was a mere lad, he was put in charge of his brothers, given a swanky coat, made overseers over the affairs within the family livestock. 
He was bought by Potiphar. He was taught how to run the household of a wealthy Egyptian family. Something that he excelled at. Because Yahweh was with him. Chapter 39, verse 3. And then God has more cross training for him. Which is why he transferred him to the prison. Where he learned to give orders to men. Who were more than likely not so easy to deal with. And even those with the upper crust. And the, the baker and the cup bearer came and visited. And all of this was on the job training. It was preparing Joseph for a job that he wasn't seeking, for a position that he was not looking to have, but to one that God had appointed that he would fulfill. And there are two character traits within Joseph that made him the man for this job. One was his absolute devotion to the Lord. His obedience to the God that had saved him, which was demonstrated over and again in the manner in which he lived. And the second character trait that made him qualify for the job is something that he didn't do. We're never told of him looking north, wondering about his father and his family in Canaan, longing for his old life, his old home. Somehow, some way, he was content with where he was. And as I said a second ago, this chapter deals with his family. The family that he seems to have not thought much of. Because during these past seven years, he could have sent messengers into Canaan to find out about his family. He could have sent them a Hallmark card saying, Hey, greetings from Egypt. Guess what? I'm alive. Oh, remember those dreams that uh, I told you about all those years ago? Well, guess what? They came to pass. You should come and visit. Love, Joseph. But he never did. He seemed content. And you may think, of course he was content. He had riches. He had power. He had luxury. He had respect. And yet, how many of the richest, most influential people in this country are not content? And in fact, if you live in this country, you are among the richest people in the world. Are you content? Have your riches given you the ability to forget, to forgive, get over things that happened to you in your past? Have they caused you to be content in the life that the Lord has given you here? And how many of the richest in our society seem like they cannot forgive or forget things? Even things that didn't happen to them, but happened to their ancestors. And don't forget, Joseph was also living in a society, in a completely foreign land, that spoke a completely different language, worshipped completely different false gods. He could have never have had a conversation with anyone there about his Lord, about the true and living God that he served. Well, he could openly talk about God. That would have been permitted because he lived in a culture that was polytheistic. But none of those people would have ever understood. They weren't of his tribe. And still, Joseph wasn't nostalgic. 
But we, we live in a culture, and we have been trained by this culture to be nostalgic. We have been raised on It's a Wonderful Life, on Home Alone, by the Christmas story, by those Hallmark movies, and those Christmas commercials. And we've allowed nostalgia and sentimentalism to become a sacred cow in our life. And these things so very often override and overrule the word of God in our lives. We could feel like Joseph, living in a strange land. Maybe we're okay with where we are. We'll suffer for Jesus in this God-forsaken part of the country, but we're not going to be content here. This will not be our home. We will not see this place as home. Our kids aren't here. Our family isn't here. The trees, the green lands that we love, they're not here. The warm weather, the oceanscapes that cause our hearts to soar, they're not here. So we, we begrudgingly suffer for Jesus here. And this thinking, this non-contentment is sin. It flies in the very face of the commands given to us over and again in scriptures. But this was never the situation in the life of Joseph. And since his life is the focus of this last section of the book of Genesis, we are given it for a reason. We are given it to wonder at, to question ourselves with, to marvel at, and then to imitate. He was only able to live this way, to not only survive, but to thrive, not only do his job, but to do it well, to be a blessing in his countenance, so much so that he flourished, and all those around him that he, that he served flourished as well. He was only able to do this because God was with him. And you will say, well, he was special. That's why, I mean, doesn't this, uh, doesn't this prove that he was special? And I would agree with you, he was special. Just not in the way that you were thinking that he was special. He is special only in the same way that you are special. If you are a saint. If you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know God as my Lord and as your Lord. This is how we are special. And this is how he was special. Saints, let me recap. Let me just recap to you what is given to us in the salvation of God because I think, I know, I know that we do not know this. We have the wrath of God. The just wrath of God for our sins removed from us. Not forgotten. Not forgiven. We are forgiven. But those sins, they are not. They are paid for by the wrath of God. The wrath 
The payment for our sin is poured out with precision and intent on the Lamb of God, the very favorite, the adoring and adored Son of God. We had sold ourselves to Satan. We had removed ourselves from the family of God. We didn't love him. We could not love him. We could not have desired him because we had sold ourselves to the lowest bidder. And we were, stand, we were standing bound by our sin on the auction block of eternity, doing our master's bidding. And not just doing our master's bidding, but happily doing our master's bidding. And then God, purchased us off of that auction block. He loosened those self-inflicted shackles from our hands and from our feet. And he offered for us his most prized and loved son in return for you. He bought us back and he has made us sons and he has given us an eternal family. We are sons of the Most High God. And we have been given Him as our Father, as our Savior, as our Spirit. We are now righteous. And we are now holy. And we are now no longer under His just condemnation because of His Son because of his love. And we've been given his body. You have no right to be here. I have no right to be here. To be part of this body. To be part of his family. This body is out of our league. It's out of our depth. But we think so little of it. That we think very little of it. For so many, the body of Christ being made part of this body, which is what our salvation has done. This salvation, this right standing with the Lord has been relegated as second in our lives. Very often by the nostalgia and the hallmark feelings of our former life. The body that we have covenanted with, at best, it's second in our life. And we may never say that out loud, but it's evidenced by how we live our lives. And this last section of Genesis, it deals with Joseph and his family. And you're thinking to yourself, well, because it is dealing with his family, the blood relatives do matter then. And they do. But we need to understand what God is doing in this section of Scripture. With this family, he is creating our eternal family. The one that our Savior will come from. And this is why this family, these men are important. And these chapters are given to us as a practical application, a life lesson of how Romans 8.28 actually works in the lives of saints. Saints, our family matters. 
but we need to learn to understand which family matters. Joseph knew. He was content in Egypt, no matter their circumstances, because no matter where he was sent, his family was with him. Genesis 39.3, Yahweh was with him. For many today, many who claim to be of the tribe of Christ, who claim to be of the true Israel, they will hear that clarion call of Joshua when he admonished those who had made the same claim that they have in his day. He says to them, So now, fear Yahweh, serve him in integrity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. If it's evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourself today who you will serve, whether the gods which were father, your fathers served were beyond the rivers or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land we are now living. But as for me and for my house, we will serve Yahweh. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. And because we have been spoon-fed that nostalgia and the narcissism of our culture from our youth, we will end up choosing today to serve ourselves and our idea of which family is important instead of serving God. Saints, we have been ill-taught. We have had bad role models. We have been allowed by the culture we have allowed the culture to determine our relationship with the family that made it possible for Joseph to flourish in Egypt. Saints, allow the Bible to speak. Allow God to tell you where he requires you, what he requires of you, where he requires your allegiance to be. Let's start with you first. God deals with you first and your relationship with him first. In Exodus 20, verse 3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. And then Jesus reiterated this command when he walked the earth. He didn't only, he, not only the command that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind, that was what he meant by you will not have any other gods before me. And then to help us understand what that meant, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, Matthew 6.33. Which he then followed up with, if anyone does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, and whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Matthew 10.38 and 39. Your standing with God your adoption into his family. This, that, is supposed to be held in the highest regard by you. And we're so often not used to thinking like this, not used to having the word of God rule over us, not used to thinking of the implications of our salvation. And again, mainly because we have been ill-taught. But Jesus, however, would think would have you think otherwise. Because later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us just how important our right standing with the Lord, 
how important this new family is. In Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, Jesus said, your standing with God, your right standing with him, and the family that you have been bought back into, this is supposed to be the most valuable thing in all of creation. Can you see how ill-taught we have been? When have you ever been admonished to see your right standing with the Lord as being the most important thing that you will ever, can ever possess? That it is, that he is of such great value that you should be willing to sell all, forsake all, just to know him and be known by him. What we have been taught, what we have been shown is that his salvation is almost meaningless, almost worthless. When has the importance and the grandeur of our most blessed of standings with God been demonstrated to us by those in leadership? Which of their lives would be worth imitating? Jesus's was. Paul's was. Calvin's was. So were the Puritan pastors. So was Edwards. So was Whitfield. And these men, with the exception of Christ, these men were all fatally flawed and they were sinners just like you and me. But all of them saw that most blessed standing with God as the most important thing in their lives. So they lived in such a manner that they, like Paul, could say, and we, you saint, if you are a Christian, you are supposed to know God in such a manner that you, like Paul, you, like Paul, should say, I urge you, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 4.16. Something again, he doesn't urge later on in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, you are to imitate me, just as I imitate Christ. When have we ever been shown to live like that? And when did Christ change the rules how has his salvation become so anemic? Has his blood lost its power? We have been so ill-taught, so ill-led. But God, through Paul, tells us in Romans 12 just how important the standing is of ours and the effects of being made a son of God. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, 
holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you, you will approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And how many of us here have no idea what the will of God is for us? Because we are conformed to the world and have not allowed the word of God to transform our minds. And you're thinking, what has this all got to do with nostalgia, with our nucleus family, with being content with the life that God has given us? What has this got to do with our chapter from today? Well, back in Matthew, before Jesus tells us that if we are our own God, that we, if we do not submit to him as being Lord, that you cannot be of him, which is where Joseph was at. This is what has happened to him. He was of Christ. He was submitted to God. Jesus there, back in Matthew, addressed that thorny issue of our flesh and blood relatives. In verse 37 in Matthew 10, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you may be thinking, well, this was just hyperbole. Jesus didn't really mean that. But this was spoken in the same conversation, in the same context where he said, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't. I, came to bring, I did not bring, come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household, verses 34 through 36. I know. Controversial. And even more than that, personal. But before you get your knickers in a wad, think. As much as this can be offensive to us in our day and age, it was even more offensive to the Jews in the, day that, in the days that Christ walked the earth. In that day and age, family was everything. They never moved away from each other. They stuck together. They lived close to each other. They celebrated all the holidays together. They were known by their families. And to those, even those who thought that they could come to Christ, be of him on their own terms. To those, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple who does not carry his own cross. He, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 25 through 27. And perhaps the most clearest, the most starting revelation of how God says that we are to see and view our flesh and blood relatives in comparison to his family, to the church, to our new life in Christ. That's found in Mark chapter 3 when he says, when his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those that were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother 
my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my mother. Saints, it's my desire, not just for you, but for me, to live in the majesty of our salvation, to make the church essential once again. And to do this, we must throw off the shackles of our societally emotionalism, and we must embrace the freedom that is found in Christ. Because his salvation is one of love. He is telling you, esteem him and his family of the greatest value and find your identity in him, not in here. And the reason for this is that there's no good in you outside of him. And there's no good in your family outside of him either. And there was no good in the family of Joseph either, outside of him. But what this chapter is about, what it is demonstrating to us, is how important your true family is. That family of God, the people of Israel. And our chapter today reveals how God heals broken families, his broken families. How he works all things together for the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And the treatment that he uses, that divine physician, the treatment that he uses to heal old, festering wounds and the balm that he applies to bring about forgiveness. And the first treatment that he uses is he liberally applies some suffering. Verses 1 through 3. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Then he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us there, so that we may live and not die. So ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. And saints, we don't understand this kind of suffering, this kind of hardship. We whine when we can't buy our favorite brand of something that we desire. What these men desired wasn't a certain brand of coffee or cereal or bread. They weren't concerned that their favorite restaurant wasn't in their area, that Whole Foods wasn't close to them. What they desired was food that would keep them alive. And even though this was the chosen family of God, because these men were sinners, there was still this deep festering wounds within this family. It's evident that dad didn't think very much of these men, didn't trust them very highly. First, because of how he speaks of them in verse 1, and then what we're told in verse 4, that Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, lest any harm befall him. But off these brothers are sent, and off they grow, Ten grown men who are sent to a foreign land to buy food in order to live. Verses 5 through 9. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was also in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the one in power over the land. 
He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the nakedness of the land. And in verse 6, we are told of the fulfilling of the dreams that were given to Joseph more than 20 years ago. His brothers bowed down to him, just as God said that they would. And we need to rightly understand verse 9, especially in light of the tone of the voice that's used in verse 7, in light of the fulfilling of the dreams that Joseph had, because it could seem that Joseph isn't over the way that his brothers treated him so long ago. It would be very easy for us to turn that thinking, the thinking from this verse, and start thinking that Joseph had revenge on his mind against these men because they had stole his youth and his innocence from him. Easy, very easy to think that Joseph was bitter. He was an embitter, enraged victim who was just lashing out. Because after all, we all know that hurt people hurt people. But if this were true, how do we explain how Joseph had lived his entire life? How he interacted with his master, and then his master's wife, and then the cupbearer, and then Pharaoh. How was it that he could live for so long like this and still be bitter, enraged, and a hurt man? This is an important thought to think through. Because we need to understand this about those that are bitter, that are enraged, that will not forgive or forget. They're not mad at a person. They're mad at God. They don't have an issue with that person. They have an issue with God. And more often than not, it's the false God that has dominion over them that they have an issue with because that false God has let them down. But Joseph's life, how he had lived for the past 20 plus years proves that he was content with his life. Proves that he wasn't unforgiving. Proves that he understood Romans 8.28. This is how he saw God. That his family had been with him every step of the journey for those 20 years. But for those that believe that seeing his brother triggers Joseph and took him to the edge of despair over his lost childhood, to those who would think this way, I would have to ask you, what was it again that Potiphar saw in Joseph? What was it that he said were the qualifications that were needed to rule over the land that Joseph possessed? It was the same qualities that Joseph possessed when he was in the house of Potiphar that he, Potiphar, saw in Joseph. The thing that we are told about again in chapter 39, that Yahweh was with him. And you may be thinking, does this not prove that Joseph must have been special? Because, David, you've just been telling me that Yahweh was with me. I'm of the redeemed. I have the same God living in me that was living in Joseph. Why is it that no one ever sees God in me like this? Perhaps it's because you're nostalgic and not obedient 
Perhaps it's because the thing that you see as true riches that has dominion over you and over your life is not the thing that Joseph did. Joseph wasn't vindictive. He wasn't angry at his brothers. The Lord was using Joseph. And the Lord is now going to move the brothers of Joseph from those elementary purification processes of that severe famine. He's going to turn up the heat a bit to draw out the dross in them, which is what happens in verses 10 through 17. Then he said to them, then they said to him, pardon me, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants aren't spies. And he said to them, no, you have come to look at the nakedness of our land. So they said, Your servants are twelve brothers and all the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and the one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I have said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may go get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And then he put them in prison for three days. The Lord is using that famine. And now the trial of being accused of being spies to bring to the forefront the sin that must never have been talked about within this family by these brothers. They tell this man the truth of who they are, the truth of their family concerning how they are. And ironically, it's to a member of their own family that they're telling this truth to. And it's ironic that the Lord uses a family member of theirs to bring about this trial and to bring to the forefront this sin that these men must have been harboring within themselves for so long and never talked about. And then verse 18 is pivotal. And Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and and live, for I fear God. And made, the statement made by Joseph here is actually filled with meaning and even a question. He says, do this and live, for I fear God. He spoke to them through a translator, not in Hebrew. And what he said to them was not that he feared any of the false gods of Egypt. He didn't name them as the God that he feared. The word used here, the God that he tells them of that he fears is Elohim. That's the statement that he made. And in this statement, there's a question. I fear God, Elohim. Do you? You who have had the privilege of being in the covenant community all this time, do you, the chosen chosen sons of Israel, do you fear Yahweh? And then God, through the chosen instrument in these men's lives, the famine, the jail, He then gives them the means to prove who they fear. Verses 19 through 20. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go bring grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be proven true and you will not die. And they did so. That last sentence That last sentence that we could just glaze right over. They 
did so. Saints, this is the grace of God. Here, almost randomly thrown in is the not yet spoken of as already the already. We are already given the answer to that unasked question of Joseph, whether or not they love Yahweh or not. We are told that which these men did not yet fully know. And they did so. And the healing process would begin in these men. At this moment, they submit to the word of God, which is what we are told of in verses 21 and 22, when they said, Surely we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, saying, Do not sin against a boy, yet you would not listen? So also his blood, behold, it is required of us. What do they do? They confess. They repent. Their hearts have been rent by the Spirit of God over their sin, which they committed 20 years ago. And they repented for it. And then we're given verses 23 and 24. Now they didn't know that Joseph was listening, for there was an interpreter between them, and he turned away from them and he wept. And then he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So there's speculation as to why we're given that last part of verse 24, that it was Simeon who was chosen to remain. And the speculation goes like this, because it must have been Simeon who was the original instigator in the crimes against Joseph so long ago, who had him thrown into the pit and then bound up and sold as a slave. That's why he's chosen. At least that's a speculation. The truth is, we don't know why he's chosen. But this we do know. That when he sent his brothers away, as they will be, with the provisions that they're sent to buy, and when they find the money that they are paid, that they paid for those provisions in their packs, we're told how they felt. Verse 28. So he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And this happened all after a few days after Simeon was thrown into jail. When they saw the money in their packs, they had to know in their minds, Simeon is a dead man. And they didn't think that this was just a mistake, that it was a man-made error. They knew that it was the hand of God that brought this about. And even though it was Joseph who was the reason that had their money turned, returned to them. In the heavenlies, where it matters the most, it was God who truly had done this. Which brings us back to verses 29 through 38. And then they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. So we said to him, We're honest men, we're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father in the land of Canaan. 
Then the man, the Lord of this land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine to your household and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will give you your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it happened that they were emptying their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And they and their father saw the bundles of money, and they feared. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if, you don't, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hand, and I will return into him. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone remains. If harm should befall him on his journey with which you are going, then you would bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. And as we can see, it's not just the brothers that the Lord is working on here in this chapter. Jacob himself is now having his heart worked on. Now having been taught a lesson with walking with the Lord. Jacob, Israel, has seemed to have fallen into that American evangelical mindset. He is self-centered. Sure that all the things that are happening around him, they're actually happening to him. God is doing all of this because of me. And in one regard, it's actually true. But just not for the reason he thinks. At this moment, Jacob is not walking as he once did, as his son in Egypt is. He's not walking in the fear of the Lord. He's walking in the fear of that other God that has been allowed to regain control over him, that he himself has set over him, the God of self. Saints, I began this sermon spending a lot of time in the attempt to focus our minds and our hearts on our true family and the reality of God the importance of being made part of his family. And the Lord has given us this last section of Genesis for the same reason. We are given the life of Joseph, not because the Lord desired us to have a happily ever after story to finish up Genesis with. We are given the life of Joseph because we're supposed to reflect He's saved in the same manner and means as we are. He's covered by the same blood as we are. He's no different than you and me. In fact, he's no different than his father, who has a really bad case of the poor me syndrome right now. And we are given this section of scripture to cause us to reflect on our own salvation and our own walk with the Lord. Who, who in this chapter do you identify most with? Is it Joseph, who was diligent in all that he did? Not perfect, but grateful, thankful, in awe of the hand of God in his life. Or is it his brothers, who remain walking in their flesh, content with an impersonal relationship with the Lord because they have been unwilling to deal with the sins of their youth. Well, they're in the family. 
But the thing that makes them part of the family just doesn't seem to matter very much to them. They've never been taught to understand the importance of whose they are. They've harbored ill will. They've lived unrepentant, unforgiving until now. Or perhaps you identify with Jacob. A man who seems to have been beat down by the life that God has given him. A man who had once had visions of God, who once had been enthralled by God, who once wrestled with God. And a man who takes it personal that his beloved son was taken from him. God did this to me. And a man who is holding much too tightly to that remaining son. Saints, we're given this section of scripture to find ourselves in. Because we've had the blood of Christ shed for us, making us part of the family of God. And every single one of us is given the ability to have the greatest ministry. The greatest ministry that any man could ever be given. God has given this to you. We may never be Calvins or Whitfields or Spurgeons or even Lottie Moons, but if we are saved by grace, then every one of us are given the right to crawl into the lap of our Father and remain there. And this is where the greatest ministry in this life is found. We are told in chapter 39 that Yahweh was with Joseph and the way that he lived proved that, he, that this is true. That he had found his peace, his hope, his very essence of being in the person of God, the God that was with him. He had crawled into the lap of God and he had refused to leave. This ministry is available to every single one of us. Saints, as you crawl into his lap and you remain there, remain there, trusting in the Lord with all of your heart, not leaning on your own understanding, acknowledging him in all of your ways, watching, trusting as he makes your path straight. When that happens, we're no longer going to be challenged by the word that tells us to seek his kingdom. That will no longer be an affront to our personhood or family. Because we know that all these things have already been given to us. Chapter 42 is given to us to allow us to see the hand of God. The loving hand of God working all things together for the good. Slavery. Separation. A severe famine. Being confronted with sin. And even the consequences of our sins and even holding too tightly to people, to our family. Is God 
Is the Lord the epicenter of all that you're thankful for? When you are thankful for your family, are you thankful for them because of them? Or are you thankful for them because of him? Or are we scared like his brothers? Fearful over past sins because we're unwilling to confess and repent? Or do we make our families, the ones here on earth, our social our social status, are they the thing that we find our source of contentment in? Are they our joy? Just as Joseph's father did. Or are we like Joseph? Do we know that no matter what, we've already been given the greatest gift ever? In his son, in this his body. Saints, if you have found yourself in his brothers today, if your life resembles that of Jacob, fearful, clinging to the flesh, God knows. He's given this, this chapter for a reason. We're supposed to ask these questions. We're supposed to do this work with him. We're supposed to look at the lives of these saints in this account and ask ourselves, whose life do we desire? Not which one do we look like, which life do we desire? And understanding that all that is happening in your life, all of it is the loving hand of your loving father. Yahweh is with you, just as he was with Joseph. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is this. How important is this to us? Where are we finding our security, our comfort, our hope, even the meaning for life? Saints, God is all of this. And more. Saints, may I admonish you one more time. Run to your father. Jump into his lap. Wrap your arms around him. And refuse to leave. This is the will of God for you. Let's pray.